Hello there and welcome to our latest music podcast which we recorded with our musician guest Jonathan Lilly discussing the songs and the stories behind them from 1967. The full podcast including all songs chosen by Jonathan can be heard on Spotify, search over our garden mall. However, if you can't access Spotify, this is a copy of all the chat from the podcast. You can of course listen to Jonathan's songs on Apple Music too, just not in this podcast. Apologies for this and hopefully one day we can publish info on Apple as we do on Spotify. Enjoy, stay safe. Hello there and welcome to the latest episode of Over Our Garden Mall, a music podcast that is setting out to establish, if possible, what the best year for popular music was. To help us do that, we will be joined by a special guest on each episode who will nominate their favourite year and provide a playlist of songs from that year, which we will listen to, discuss and no doubt debate. I'm Brian Davidson and I am joined today by my co-host and neighbour, McDee. Good evening. Good evening, how are you sir? I'm very good. Nice office. Thanks very much. Glad you like it. And more importantly, today's guest, Jonathan Lilly. Jonathan is Hi, a le- Hi Jonathan, how you doing, mate? Yeah. I like doing? the more importantly. <laughs> more importantly, Jonathan Lilly. Hi, mate, how you doing? Good, thank you. Jonathan is a leader and main songwriter for The Gracious Losers, who have released two classic albums, the most recent one being Six Road Ends in 2021, and have earned a reputation as outstanding live performers. Jonathan is also a member of another great Glasgow based band, Sister John, and listen- listeners may notice a very strong Glasgow accent from Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan, how you doing, mate? What about you? <laughs> what about you, indeed. Uh, thanks very much for making the time to join the podcast today. Really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to playing some of the tunes you've chosen from your nominated year, which is... 1967. 1967, Summer of Love. We have already had some fantastic years and guests all making a case for their year being the best, and 67 Playlist is looking very cool too. So, intro's over. Let's play your first selection from the seminal album The Velvet Underground and Nico... This is All Tomorrow's Parties. All Tomorrow's Parties, a lovely way to start today's podcast. So let's get stuck into the discussion, Jonathan. Why 1967? Um, other people have picked other years. <laughs> Good answer. Well, <laughs> um, actually, the more I think about it, um, my gateway into a lot of music has sort of taken an odd route. I, I grew up in Northern Ireland, and uh, this isn't maybe a... A reflection of Northern Ireland per se, but my I didn't have a stereo. You know, we didn't have a family radio or stereo or record player in, in the house, so it took me a while to find out things of my own accord. So around about 12, 13, I think twelve, um, someone at school had played um, Sergeant Pepper album and was hailing something like I think she's leading home is maybe one of the greatest songs ever written. And I thought, well, I need to hear more of that then. And it was really at a time where I was figuring out music was important to me, I guess. So went to a shop, bought a tape, saved up my pocket money kind of thing. And that was really starting to get a sense of, right, there's a whole world here that I have no idea about, but makes a lot of sense to me. And so I guess that being, you know, the real first big kind of gateway into finding music for myself, uh, and it's odd, I guess, because I'm, you know, I'm talking about, you know, mid 80s. I'm finding this out. So it wasn't part of, you know, the era that, that I was living in. Um, so, yeah, a lot of these things just weren't in my radar at the time. And uh, it felt nice to find something. Mm. And so I guess 1967, because that was when Pepper came out, became a bit of a pivotal year for my gateway into 
you know, you hear one album, so you hear Pepper, then you want to hear something else of that time and then something else of that time. And then you want to hear the stones of that time and stuff. So, yeah, it's it starts to spread out like that. So that was the route, I guess, um, for thinking about 1967 as a year. But but I suppose I don't particularly, you know, I'm picking 1967, uh, but I don't particularly listen to music in terms of that was a great year or that was a great year. Uh, when anybody ever asks me, you know, what was the best decade for music? I always say 65 to 75. <laughs> you know, it's like it's yeah. never the 60s or the 70s or the 80s or anything like that. Um, so for me, yeah, 67 was also, a, a, I think, a turning point in music of, of quite a, an incredible decade. So, yeah, I thought it was good to sort of have a look at that for that reason, too. Yeah, it's, good. it's a good show. Uh, any other years you would have went for then with a clean run? Ooh, um, 70, 72, um, 69, <laughs> Yeah, it's funny you say that. So we've done 12 recordings now, and top of my head, I would say uh, nine or 10 of them are from that period, 65 to 75. Yeah, well, there you go. It's the best decade. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're, you're, I'm sure you're right. Uh, and I've asked all the guests this, so it's kind of funny answers we get, but we've asked them all what they were doing in the year that they've picked. Yeah, I was time traveling. <laughs> so you were, yeah. you were T minus. Yeah, I was. Yeah, minus. God, how many years? Minus uh, six or seven years. Minus oh. six years. Yeah, something like that. It's a good answer. A, a few have given the age away and stuff, but uh, yeah, because it's interesting. Because part of the chat really is then then how you get into that stuff, which you've already alluded to there about um, Northern Ireland and and friends and stuff. But when you're picking things that that weren't part of your growing up, it's interesting to find out how it became part of your sort of music. And, and your selection. Some of the other guys have picked things that were kind of emotionally quite important to them when they were like 12, 13, 14, that, that, mm. that type of age. But that's quite interesting. So you've picked another some... odd... Sorry, so I was going... another odd thing about when I got into those albums. So once I heard Pepper, then I just explored all the Beatles things. And uh, my only sort of way of, like I said, we didn't have a family sort of stereo. So my only way of sort of hearing these things was on a Walkman, I think. Hmm. So I'd be buying the tapes and I got to know them inside out, note for note. And then later on, when I sort of actually got proper albums, the, the records of them, I thought, this is all wrong because the tapes had changed the orders, you know, <laughs> so they would fit on the side of a cassette. Yeah. And so my, you know, that natural flow in my ears and my head and my memory that was just absolutely ingrained is, is still kind of funny because of that. Yeah. I had a copy of um, Flam Inflammable Material by Stiff Little Fingers um, mm. for years, and I didn't realise there was a big jump on suspect device so yeah. it skipped and it, it kind of skipped like a whole sentence but yeah. the music didn't really change because obviously it was a bit sort of thrashy wasn't it yeah. and i went to my friend's house maybe i don't know a year 18 months later and they put it on and i said well, where'd you get that version and they said yeah. what were we talking about you know and I had no <laughs> idea that i'd missed the whole line of the song so yeah it was uh, the same for me with um highway 61 revisited the second side uh, on the tape just starts right in the middle of the song, right? It obviously didn't have enough space to, you'd think they would cut the end of a song, but no, they, they cut the start of the song. And I thought, that's genius. What a great way to start a song, just halfway through, mid-sentence. But yeah, then I learned that it was an actual intro. So listen, if you pick 67 um, and you've sort of, you're, you're happy with that, and I think we asked you for 15 songs. Mm. Um, so how hard was it then getting a kind of group of songs together without leaving out things that were kind of must-hears? Yeah, nightmare, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a big, tough thing. And it's also an era of singles. So um, being not of that era, 
sometimes you you get to know the songs through albums and sort of lots of hidden little songs you know little gems on albums little sleeper songs um but actually that was the time when you know singles were huge and mm. just one-off songs um were worth exploring and worth finding out and i another thing that um i started doing once i got into a lot of 60s music as a teenager was i'd find these sort of catalog kind of mail order sort of compilation tape things you know um by year so you would get 1966 in the post you get and so that at least they would gather a whole weird mix of all the chart music so you would get an insight into the singles that were around them so i managed to sort of remember some of those songs too yeah and why velvet underground then for your first selection it's well it's one of the best intros to any song anybody you know that little quiet guitar and then a huge big reverby sort of bass drum sort of on its side being walloped and then nico's voice you know uh it's it's utterly unique utterly utterly unique and and we as we were talking earlier when the guitar starts playing it's almost like the the new york version of the birds you know uh, east coast yeah. version very and and very that, that sort of thing that music was starting to go to you know because of george harrison and we'll maybe come to that later of looking eastern sort of direction for certain different scales and looking to jazz for different scales you know popular music was now sort of going into the outer reaches for for ideas and uh yeah no more so than this song in its entirety the way it's recorded the way it's played the way it's sung very non-singery kind of singing mm. i mean when when did you hear that in that at that time everybody that was in showbiz had to be a super duper singer <laughs> and suddenly here's real lo-fi proper lo-fi recording proper lo-fi playing proper lo-fi singing but yet it's you know it's one of the greatest things you ever hear yeah, and Nico was a she, she was a kind of a difficult add-on, wasn't she, to the band in many ways? She was yeah. kind of forced on them a little bit through Andy Warhol. But I think she sings on so three maybe songs. I think on the the, yeah. the, the first record, but um, her voices. It's hard to imagine the album without her on there now, isn't it? Yeah, and in retrospect, it's uh, it's nice. It adds to that thing of uh, you know at one point the band having a chanteuse. You know, it adds to that kind of weird sort of feel that they had that they're so they're slightly mysterious with a front woman sort of. But then on the album, you know, she's not fronting anything on half the songs. No. So yeah, there's there's lots of interesting sort of playing around with what's a lead singer, and yeah, adding a bit of mystique to to themselves. And of course, '67 was a year where Nico also did her own first solo album um which was phenomenal and it was hard not to pick something from that to be fair that, so is that yeah. chelsea girl yeah 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 it's a great album as well and th and this was a debut album i actually didn't realize that they released it as a single um yeah i was quite surprised that's not you know they hard enough getting the album out there but um it's it's not the kind of single that jumps out you the radio at you is it you know it's uh and i was even more surprised to find out it charted it was uh it was well, top, top 40 in the uk which I was amazing. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean out of the ones that they could have said was more radio friendly, but I've got to say it would jump out at me if I heard <laughs> that in 1967. Yeah, that's very true. And it's got a kind of, like, I don't know, like a chanty thing, a Gregorian kind of feel to it, hasn't it? It's that droning well, thing that they do so well. Yeah, yeah. part of that might have been their, you know, John Cale's background in sort of tonal music, mm. I think, and, and sort of modal stuff. And 
and how you know he was coming from that sort of background of how can we keep a note or a chord going for like 12 hours so his piano that really as soon as it comes in it yeah. stays throughout and sort of odd harmonics that creates sort of like odd drones you don't really hear the chord change from the piano interesting you only really hear it through the bass um so yeah um he's a lot to do with that i think yeah absolutely and and it became a, an iconic record but i think it's kind of well stated that it wasn't particularly well received at the yeah. time i think the press was at thirty thousand records i think for the initial run and um you know took some time to to get those shifted i think it only went gold six or seven years later yeah. Um, it just shows you I think was it Brian Eno wasn't it it says that uh, the, the 30,000 copies that were sold everyone who bought one started the band yeah. which is a, <laughs> a brilliant yeah. quote isn't it and and it's got that kind of impact it's like the kind of Sex Pistols thing at Manchester isn't it you know the, the guys that were there all went out and formed a gig which I think we were talking to, to Douglas about the other it's day it's funny because I think if you ask the band, they would much prefer that people bought it at the time <laughs> rather than it be some kind of classic yeah. 50 years later. <laughs> well, especially the fact that the, the lineup, well, I think, only lasted two records. Well, well Nico was yeah. there for one and the, the core lineup was two, I think, and then Kale yeah. left, didn't they? So you're right, they didn't they didn't quite get the commercial benefit of it as a as a band, but as a as a kind of reputation, if you want, the the, the influence they've had is significant, isn't it, on, on so many genres, not just that kind of avant-garde stuff, but you know, they were loved by punk and obviously electronica and all the other sort of um, different musical genres that came after that. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's overlooked uh, with the Velvet Underground is um, they wrote songs, you know, as, as for yeah. all their experimental kind of stuff that people hail them for being different for, they could write a melody. And that, you know, in a way, anybody can go into a room and create feedback and, and, and thrash out a chord for 12 hours, whatever. But, you know, they put a song on top of that. So that, that was their genius, I think, taking yeah. beautiful melodies, heartbreaking melodies or melodies that, you you know, you wanted to dance to and sing along to. But they, they merged that with the experimental stuff. And, and that was what I think sets them apart. Yeah. yeah, and it was famously produced by Andy Warhol. But, you know, the story obviously was he didn't he didn't do a lot of producing. But but I think he did give them a lot of air cover and obviously funded, I guess, you know, a lot, a lot of the recording and stuff. And probably without him, the band might, might not have um, heard, been heard or came out in the way they did. So, you know, I think he did have quite a lot of direct influence as well as the kind of indirect stuff that he had. I did read somewhere, I think he was always sort of pushing them to do different stuff. And um, then obviously they sort of parted company, didn't they? And I read a little snippet um, from Lou Reed uh, regarding why they left Warhol. And he says, well, uh, Reed says, well, he sat us down and had a talk with me. You've got to decide what you want to do. Do you want to keep just playing museums from now on and the art festivals? Or do you want to start moving into bigger arenas? Lou, don't you think you should think about it? So I thought about it and I fired them. <laughs> and, and moved on and, and did something else. And they were one of those bands really that they, they just kept changing, didn't they? Even by their second or third record, they were they still sounded like they were underground, but they were sounding different as well. Um, mm. And they never stopped. Uh, and I think one of the guys mentioned the 69 live album um, as potentially one of the kind of best live albums that was out there. I think it was Graham Skinner talked about it. So yeah. um, so they had that kind of ongoing legacy as well, didn't they? Yeah, and it's a surprise, I think, to hear that album, if you've heard the recordings. There's a real hushness to it that I think would probably surprise people mm. if they'd heard their first two albums, mm. you know, uh, which which shows, yeah, that they're 
they were very they were a very fluid band you know it was is that thing of every time they perform it it's going to be a version there's no definitive version really um of, of what they do so that's what makes some bands brilliant it makes other bands great that they have definitive versions i think yeah um that you can recognize but for for some you know every time you see them you don't know what you're going to get yeah and and, and, and also you've got an iconic cover to boot haven't you yep yeah yep. With every old, one of theirs you know the old peeling banana thing that i think that was the reason it was delayed so much wasn't it coming out because they they started off with this uh, this peeling banana thing that you could do and then worked out they couldn't keep doing that because it was a too expensive and b too much hassle. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I think I think you know goes with the whole image and story now. I think that it's just a package, really, isn't it? It's fantastic. Yeah, beautiful. And and you know, legacy, significant legacy, I guess. Well, yeah, you'd have to argue that it, they're probably one of the most influential bands ever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, agree with all that. So, um, that's us. We're, we're sort of we've wandered back into 67 or 9 now, so uh, no better way to do that than Velvet Underground. So, Jonathan, your next selection sort of puts us very much in 67 as well. So, tell us about Let's Spend the Night Together by the Rolling Stones. Yeah, um, I don't think it's probably the worst year for the Rolling Stones. I, I, I really don't like Satanic Majesties, you know, I think it's a dreadful album. I think they would. They just had totally lost the plot. They were always getting busted. They were out of their minds. They weren't a unit at all. Um, yeah, they, they were a shambles, I think, effectively in 67. And they were always chasing, um, trying to hang on the coattails of the Beatles, I think, at this point as well. They hadn't quite, as soon as you get into 68, they find their own sound, I think, for the for, for really that they have stuck to for the last 50 years, arguably. But, um, Let's Spend the Night Together, that came out, I think, at the start of 67. Yeah. I sort of viewed that almost as Andrew Lou Goldham's swan song with them. Right. You know, we talked about Andy Warhol being a sort of a producer in absentia, almost. Yeah. And, you know, Andrew Lou Goldham wasn't necessarily a producer in terms of, you know, he, he knew what the buttons did, but he knew what made a good song. And he was the one, obviously, that drove them to write their own songs and start mm -hmm. to get their own sound. He was the one that created their image. And this was at the point where he was getting fed up with them. They were getting fed up with him. And here's one last hurrah. Mm. Uh, so I think it came out al along with Ruby Tuesday. That's right. Um, but oh. it's an odd... I, I think Let's Spend the Night Together is an odd song. Um, it wouldn't be my even, even my favourite song of theirs. I mean, my favourite song of theirs from that year would probably be We Love You. Which again right. yeah. is them aping all you need is love, perhaps, you know, yeah. summer of love. Um, but it's got that driving riff and, and also Lennon McCartney on it. So it's I love We Love You. I think that's a fantastic song of theirs. But Let's Spend the Night Together has an oddness about it. It's as it's there's an odd rhythm to it. Mm. And it's all because it, it it you know, it's just got like a ching, 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 mm. ching on the snare the whole way through. But it I don't know if it's one of the first songs where Keith Richards plays the bass on it, I believe. Yeah, but uh, I mean, doesn't play on it at all. That's right. No. Yeah. So, and maybe because of that, the, the way of playing is more like a guitarist's way of playing. You know, there's no set sort of beat that he's kind of playing in, in sort of unison with the drums. It's it's very erratic mm. all over the place. And it never, you never quite get, you know, the established groove of it for me, anyway, for my years. I never quite hear how it settles. And of course, 
I suppose the song is about that, you know, are you going to spend the night with me or not? So there's that heightened sort of uh, hopefulness and optimism and, you know, wanting that to happen. So, yeah, I think it's an odd song, but, mm. but it really reveals this, not only Andrew Lou Goldham at his best, but the Stones kind of really, really create an incredible song with their odd way of doing it. You know, if, if you imagine another, if you imagine the Beatles doing that, it would be slick as hell. It would be really punchy, but it's got a raggedness to it that they then realized, ah, we, we could use that raggedness. And there were the harmonies and everything on it. Lots and lots of harmonies, but kind of, are they in tune? Are they out yeah. of tune? Hard to know, but it all works. And that's that difference between kind of the, the rhythm and blues angle that the Stones would have versus the sort of rock and roll angle that the Beatles would generally have, um, which is a bit yeah, more maybe. poppy. Um, mm. You know, Stones were always a bit sort of blacker, weren't they, in their sound and happy to, to use let it be a little bit rougher and, um, and it comes through. It's an interesting, I mean, they, they weren't particularly prolific. I, I sort of scribbled down that it feels like a bit of a bridge between sort of Stones Mark 1, if you want, first three or four albums up to Aftermath and then Stones Mark 2, which sort of starting in 68 with Beggar's Bank, it becomes, I guess, what they became. And it's, it's a kind of wee bit of sort of bridge almost because the two songs are very different, aren't they? They're... You know, one's a kind of rocker and one couldn't be less of a rocker if it tried, yeah. you know. So I think it's, it's quite an important record in, in many ways because it probably did help to define a little bit of where they were going, although they weren't quite there yet. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, I can hear how something like We Love You could, if you take away all that, the weird sort of droney uh, kind of psychedelia stuff at the end of We Love You, but just that driving piano and the, the menace in it could easily be on Beggar's Banquet, I yeah. think. Um, yeah. Let's spend the night together. I don't know if it could be. So I get that it's sort of coming from a, their covers, little R&B covers band. I don't know if you remember, was that in that Dylan film, you know, the where Kate Blanchett as Dylan said, oh, yeah, groovy little covers band, you know, <laughs> trying to pretend to be Bob Dylan. Um, so, yeah, they definitely have... Rep, you know, absolutely proven themselves to be able to write a pop song. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, and, but and, not... and it did very well. I mean, uh, you know, uh, as a single, I think that the um, the UK version went to number three, and the US version went to number one. But interestingly, in America, they struggled to get "Let's Spend the Night Together" played so much because it was kind of classified to be a little bit um, risque over there. So "Ruby Tuesday" was a song really that, that that kind of majored with in America, whereas "Let's Spend the Night Together" was the song that. They kind of led in the UK, which is quite an interesting dynamic between the the kind of the, the two musical um, areas at the time. And although they were similar, they weren't the same. Well, they almost represent that that odd thing as well that the Beatles did too, and the Stones. Uh, that all of the British invasion bands were playing back to America. Yeah, all the classic sort of blues and R and B bands that America should have known but didn't. You know that led to that sort of revival of the the old sort of blues and R&B guys. So it's odd, yeah, how things kind of ping pong in that way. Yeah. yeah. They actually, um, I think the, the first time it was heard was on the Ed Sullivan show because uh, it came out in January. It was, out, it was out quite early in the year and I think they were on the Ed Sullivan show in, in January and sort of premiered it over there. But um, he, uh, Ed Sullivan, initially said that he wouldn't allow it to be played yeah, because there was a kind of nervousness about the, the lyrics and stuff like that. And they actually say, I've got it here, he says uh, to Jagger, he says, either the song goes or you go. And they, uh, they compromised by changing the words to say, let's spend some time together. 
right? And Jagger agreed to change the lyrics, but um, ostentatiously rolled his eyes as the TV camera while singing them, as did Bill Wyman. As a result of this incident, Sullivan announced the Rolling Stones would be banned from performing on the show ever again, but they were back on it again a couple of years later. Of course, of course. Of course. Money. Of course they were. Yeah. Popularity. Yeah. Get them back. Yeah, absolutely. But um, but no, it's a great song and um and it is it's a bit of a standalone great if you want for the stones from that year, but uh some bands never write two great songs do they? So you know it's uh on on its merits, it's a fantastic single. So we'll we um we'll give it a spin. So released in January sixty seven, reaching number three in the UK, this is Let's Spend the Night Together by the Rolling Stones. That was, of course, the Rolling Stones, and um, and they were a big event in '67, and there were a few others that were sort of worth mentioning. Musical events that happened, so I've dug a couple out, Jonathan, mm. that I'll shout out to you, and uh, you can you can comment as you see fit. Um, no particular order. So January was the famous Daily Mail newspaper report about the four thousand potholes in Blackburn, Lancashire, oh, which yeah. um, I think no one remembers anything about. So we'll maybe touch on that a bit later. Uh, May. United States, Capitol Records pulled the plug on uh, the Beach Boys' Mysterious Smile project because it had been a year since he started it and uh, he didn't know how to finish it. And um, yeah, they stopped that at the time and uh, it came out eventually, but who knows what happened if it came out at the time. And in June, there was the Monterey Pop Festival, which was kind of like the first big 60s festival, I guess, was it? I guess. Um, good line lineup and stuff. The only reason I've scribbled that down was that um I didn't quite realise this that the last band to play were Otis um Otis Reading and the MGs. Yeah. Um sure. which obviously had association for, for later on in the year. So Well they always joked about when um, when they went out it'd been all these bands with their big speakers and stuff and Booker T and MGs came out and they had their wee box C thirties and you know, but I think Otis Redding said, you know, you call yourselves a love crowd, you know. Love this, yeah, stuff. In a way, now that we think you just accept all these genres happened and you just think everyone was in it all of that at the time, but they weren't. I don't know if you've seen that clip of him, I think it's, it's on Ready Steady Go or something like that. Um, with him singing, uh, with um, god, was it uh, Chris Farlow and uh, lead singer of the Animals, Eric Burden, Eric I, Burden, the three of them are, are sharing the stage and, and taking turns to sing lines of the song. It might have been wow. Shake or something they were singing. Phenomenal clip. Phenomenal. Yeah. I've not seen that, mate. I'll check that. It's, it's a great thing we're doing is that we're referencing all these things. There's like documentaries being called out and stuff that we're all going away back to check, which is brilliant. So did he die in 67 then? He yeah. died at the end of the year. long after, I December, yeah. And is one today the one where Hendrix, was that the one that Hendrix burnt his guitar or was that 69? Uh, uh, that was... Not sure. Set, or set fire is good. No, it was. I think it was Monterey because didn't he have to follow the Who? And he thought, what am I going to do? Ah, uh, right. <laughs> the, the reason I, mean, I never got seen this to uh, Douglas the other night, but there's a there's a kind of made for TV film about the Beach Boys with obviously actors playing the part, and that you know Monterey happens and Murray Wilson goes in and says, "Sell your back catalogue, boys. It's all over. This is the Who and the Jimi Hendrix are here now, you know, and they're they're sheepishly going, yeah, okay, that's it then, you know." Yeah. Obviously, the rest is not history. No, it's not history at all. No, not at all. August was um, Pink Floyd released Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which is the only album I think they did with um, Sid Barrett. Yeah. Which um, which is interesting. And again, who knows what you know where they would have went if they sort of stayed with that sound. You know, Pink Floyd. There's a bit of a debate as to whether Pink Floyd played Greenock or Dunoon. Right. 
they, they, they played one of the two places. Did they? Yeah. It's not a joke, no? No, it's not okay. a joke. Right. Kevin Gurney thinks they actually did Greenock the Palladium. But on their web, on fan websites, it says that they played the Queen's Hall in Ganoon, but there was a bit of a debate. Okay. And the next night, they went on top of the Pops and did, I'm going to say Arnold Lane. It must have been Arnold Lane, in fact. And he said, Barrett apparently thought his face was melting. <laughs> As you do when you go on top of the Pops. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And the rest is history. And the rest is history, yeah. Uh, yeah, and keeping the bad news going, um, 27th of August was when Brian Epstein passed away. Um, oh. Which now, is... Sorry, I'm going to interrupt for that one. Go on then. Um, I went to see a doctor. My dad was with me at this, and he can't remember the story, but um, what do you call the, the manager? He managed Wham and he managed... Uh, I can't remember who else. He, he, Simon Fuller? Si- no, no, not Simon Fuller. Napier Bell? Simon Napier so- Bell. Simon Napier right. Bell was getting interviewed in a Beatles documentary, which I can't remember what the name of it was, and he says that he knows exactly what happened to Brian Epstein, and he tells the story that he was the first person in England, his friend was an electronics buff, his friend was an electronics buff, and made him a, an answer machine, and so Simon wasn't in the house that night, but Brian Epstein had a wee thing for him, and apparently went away to the country, but come back that night, and kept phoning hmm. Simon's home number, hmm. And Simon says he deleted, he destroyed it because basically you could hear him getting steadily more and more out of his nut, and it wasn't suicide. Basically, he just he just took too much of everything. You probably wouldn't use that, and I just want to tell the story. I, I will if it's true. Well, no, <laughs> Simon Nickbear Bell definitely tells a story. Okay. Well, my D says that's true. So just in case we we get any pick up on that one, I had a great I had a great one two weeks ago because. You know, Brian was making jokes with Dino's everyone, he's made Oasis and he's bantered and whatever. And he mentions Donovan and I was like, I was at his 50th birthday party. <laughs> <laughs> I put Donovan on in 1992 in the Art Skill, but the two nights before he was playing in Glasgow at the, where is it again, the concert hall. Yeah. And the second of those nights, or the first of those nights, one of the two, was his birthday and his Scottish family were there. But I had a wee friend who was helping me with Rodie and he kept going, I'm on acid at Donovan's birthday party. I can't believe I'm on acid at Donovan's birthday party. So, you did. Yeah. yeah. This is where Brian regrets involving me, by the way, so I'll try not to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why we've got the edit function, Jonathan. Yeah. Um, and, and just in both doors, uh, bookending what we said earlier on there, uh, the doors also appeared on the Ed Sullivan show and managed to get banned, which will probably cheer you up because uh, he insisted that he changed the line, girl, we couldn't get much higher. Said he would, but then didn't. Yeah. Just sang it and then they did ban them and I don't think they ever played again, which is uh, which is cool. Um I mentioned Otis Reading earlier, December eighth they played a gig and then um the plane crashed um uh, after the gig, which um which is a real shame. Um and uh, and to finish off the doors, um in December ninth, Jim Morrison became the first singer to be arrested on stage. Uh, having earlier been sprayed with a can of mace, he was charged with inciting a riot, indecency, and public obscenity. So, naughty boy. Naughty boy. Was it? Was it? Was that a microphone? Did he have a microphone in his hand and pretend it was his willy or something like that? Oh, I don't know, do I? I think. I, I think. Just pleased to see the crowd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you're sure you've not um, you've not used your stage presence based on Jim Morrison at all, Jonathan? No. 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 <laughs> You're uh, moving on. Your your next band were were very important around this time, but um, but I guess probably had a, a lower profile maybe than um, than one or two of the other sort of British bands. Um, so tell us about Waterloo Sunset by the Kinks. Um, 
it's almost one of those songs you don't need to tell anybody anything about. You know, it's it's one of the great uh, songs ever to have been made in the UK. Um, it feels very British, feels very Londonish. You know, if, if London aren't proud of this song and, and have it as a national anthem, you know, I'm asking questions of them. Um, do you know that? Do you know then it was originally called Liverpool Sunset? No, I didn't. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, and it couldn't be more more London. You're you're, you're dead right. But um, he originally wrote it as Liverpool Sunset because he had this big affinity with um, the Mersey sound and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I can hear. I can hear it being kind of fitting in with the whole yeah. thing across the Mersey theme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you know, uh, as, a, as a very London song, you're right. Um, so. But I, I think it's interesting that it's, uh, you know, he had a big affinity for that and, and wrote it for that. But what I get from it is a love-hate kind of thing going on. You know, that he, it's things aren't good and he's sort of having to view life from a window, from indoors, and slightly anxious about being part of the world. And But in any case, it doesn't matter as long as he can gaze on the sunset. Mm. It, he's in paradise and that's a beautiful juxtaposition, you know, where you know life can still be all right and i think he's got one of those voices that really can convey that you know if you didn't understand english at all as a language you'd still know what what that song was about because of the sound of his voice i think uh he, he really had that ability uh, to do that and i think it, it it's also reflective of him as a person i get the impression he wasn't really ever happy really <laughs> there's something unsettled in him or just always reaching always not quite sure of himself or something like that mm. and uh this is a song about longing to be sure and seeing other people that seem to be sure of themselves but he can't be mm. and uh as, as well as that i think there's that um reference obviously to terry and julian you know we're going to talk about film maybe and uh how it sort of starts to creep into to popular song and that overlap and mentioning obviously um, Terence Stamp and uh, Julie Christie there, but they are the others, you know, he doesn't see himself as part of those. He's, he's sort of, again, in the way we look at a screen and we can fantasize about that as a couple and in, in romance, you know, he's doing yeah. the same almost in real life and using them almost as a couple in real life. So there's, there's lovely things going on. And I think another thing for me in that is, it highlights again just what an asset Dave Davies was to the band. Mm -hmm. um, I don't particularly feel as, I mean, his guitar playing is great, don't get me wrong, and he's done some pretty great stuff on their records, but but not really outstanding, notable stuff the way other bands had great guitars. For me, his secret weapon was his voice. There's no backing vocal that can you know, match Dave Davies' mm -hmm. ability to just do what the song needs and give that ache and that really high reaching thing uh, you know if you try and sing along with the backing vocals on kink songs how high can he get it's yeah. amazing and of course they've got that sort of brother brotherly friction thing going on haven't they all the time um which i guess spurs them on and sort of holds them back i guess in, in equal measures but uh it never quite never quite struck me as a kind of rock star ray davis um or anyone in the band for that matter they were almost like the kind of anti band weren't they they always seem to be looking for a kind of slightly different angle to everyone else and they, they missed out on that british invasion thing didn't they because they kind of got banned from yeah, america yeah. for a while which i don't know if that's a good or a bad thing for them well uh, you could argue it held their career back but maybe made them become yeah you know, that quintessentially english thing yeah. there was yeah. a bit of rebellion i think there you yeah. know 
if we can't make it big in America, well, you know, we'll we'll sing about things that matter to us then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and of, and of course it uh, it gave Blur a career. You know, yes. <laughs> doing the same I, I thing. Think, I think you know. I yeah. can see why Blur did that, and but yeah. like it was a, a smart move. I had dealings with them, um, Larry Page, uh, in my younger days, on and off for about a year, and I went down and visited him a couple of times, and he took me to the the the, the tree that Mark Bolin's car hit, and you know he lived in. Um, I can't remember what the, the area is called, but it's quite near the um, Olympic Studios. So he lived in he lived in what you would, I mean, they were like really really posh tenements where he stayed. Um, but he, he, you know he was quite happy to tell you about dealing with Ray and Ray being really difficult and stuff like that. But interestingly, he was still dealing with Ray Davies back, and that was like the early nineties, really. Mm. So there was still some sort of although they ostensibly didn't go on there was still uh, business dealings going on there mm. or he was exaggerating his dealings with Ray I think maybe possibly mm. yeah maybe and I think they, they had a bit of a sort of stop start career didn't they but you know when they were they were good they were very good I read uh, I think they recorded the whole song in about 10 hours which yeah. is um, which is some doing isn't it if you if you think about it and uh, I've got a little comment here from Dave Davis so he said about the recording, we spent a lot of time trying to get a different guitar sound um, to get a more unique feel for the record. In the end, we used a tape delay echo, but it sounded new because no one had done it since the 1950s. I remember Steve Murray of the Small Faces came up and asked me how we got that sound. We were almost trendy for a while. <laughs> Which kind of makes sense, doesn't it? They never, they, they were never really sort of setting the the pace, but, but every time they they sort of delivered a good song, it was a it was a great song, wasn't it? You know. Well, McCart and that McCartney one two three, um, Rick Rubin asked him, was there any bands that like you know when it, and he yeah. said the Kinks, he Kinks. said when they were supporting us, we actually stood at the side of the stage, you know, and, and what obviously slightly, so the audience couldn't see, but he said they absolutely loved the Kinks. Yeah, and they had a bit. You mentioned the Stones earlier, there, Jonathan, and they ended up with a sort of pretty good run, didn't they? From I guess face to face, which was the previous year, um, through something else, and then they had um, Arthur and they had uh, Muswell, yeah, that, absolutely yeah. Village Green, sorry, Muswell Hillbillies in in sort of early seventies. So, you know that they, they, they maybe didn't quite have that, as I say earlier on, that that profile. But I mean that that's a pretty good run of records, isn't it? Well, another great uh, singles band, I think, yeah. throughout. <laughs> 60s and I actually prefer them as they get into the 70s right um you know like um Muswell Hillbillies yeah. Lola and stuff once it gets into there I, I really love that sound that they had um but yeah yeah incredible another one that's a great greatest hits you know yeah <laughs> absolutely. every one yeah. of their songs and uh, a little um review I picked up for for the song What Will the Sunset because you say Jonathan everyone knows it uh, uh, from all music, and they say that's quote possibly the most beautiful song of the rock and roll era. Mm. And I think another interesting yeah. thing about it is the intro kind of de is deceptive. It comes in with that big descend mm. kind of thing that it feels like it's going to be going into something rocky or really upbeat. Yeah. But then it just goes, it changes its whole groove, and and it just becomes really wistful and melancholic, and yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's fantastic. So, uh, released in May 67 and it reached number two in the UK. This is Waterloo Sunset by the Kinks. So, that was the Kinks with uh, Waterloo Sunset, just lovely. So, we go from London to the kind of east coast of America now for your next selection. So, tell us about Do Right Woman, Do Right Man by Aretha Franklin. Uh, yeah, um, I love a lot of soul music from this era. Um, it speaks to me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, again, it's there's, there's something 
really simplistic, almost naive about some of the, not just the, the sort of format of the songs and, and maybe even the message, but but even the recording seemed like, well, that sounds dead easy to do. Yeah. But yeah, it's just like that Picasso thing, you know, it takes him a lifetime to learn how to draw like a child. Um, yeah. And Dan Penn and Chips Moman wrote it. And, and I think, yeah, the more I hear stuff by Dan Penn, I, I think, he, you know, there should be statues to him everywhere. <laughs> You know, he, he's, that guy. Got, he's dark end of the street is that right and yeah and like if you only you'd only have ever written two songs yeah. in your, one song in your life you know yeah. dark yeah. end of the street uh you know that's all you need to do so uh, yeah uh, and i love that sort of uh sort of feel of the south as well in music uh for some reason i'm, I'm drawn a lot to the south and uh that sort of swampiness and um, that, yeah, that real gut soul kind of sound. Mm. Uh, I haven't actually put a lot of stacks on this, but I think a lot of the songs on my big list, my full list of 15 songs we're talking about, um, could have a feel of stacks, yeah. you know, a lot more than Motown and other bits, you know, stacks and, um, yeah, some New Orleans stuff as well. But yeah, there's something about the South that really does resonate with me. Uh, it's got a guttural you know, earthiness to it that isn't as sheeny. And even though they've got Aretha Franklin singing this song, um, you know, you don't get much sort of perfect than that, more yeah. perfect than that. But yet the rest of the song has got that simple earthiness to it. And another thing I think I like about this, I know she went on, they did the main tracks, I think, and then went on to, she overdubbed stuff in New York. She went away yeah. and, and did, and it's her piano and organ playing on, I believe. And, uh, it really highlights a bit like Nina Simone and other singers. You know, these these are incredible piano players mm. that aren't seen as piano players sometimes. They're mm. just recognized as a voice. And, you know, why wouldn't you when you've got voices like that? Yeah, but, sure. yeah, the feel that, that she can give that. Um, and obviously, you know, she's got gospel roots. All of that sort of melting pot that the South has, I think I, I, I really am drawn to. And, uh, yeah, this this is one of those songs that's, it's almost one of those songs. Dark End of the Street is another. You can't kill a song like that, you know? Um, I said that to a band one time that was I was in a rehearsal room and they started playing it and I went, oh, you, you just can't kill a song like this. And, she, and they said, just wait a minute and let us try. <laughs> 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 but, uh, yeah. but yeah, it, how do you kill a song like that? Yeah, and this is uh, so. This is Jerry Wexler, isn't it? He's um, producing this yeah, stuff, yeah. so that's that kind of yeah. Stax connection. And... Well, is this not the Atlantic record? Well, sorry, it is Stax, but... There's a, there's a documentary called Hip to the Tip and it's the, the story of Atlantic and they bought stacks and... That's right, yeah. They, um, they're talking about... And it's Jerry Wexler says he was in the studio and Aretha Franklin's husband did a fight with one of the session musicians. Yeah, that's right. That's why... So I didn't realise it was Do Right Woman that was the song they're talking about because they only had an A-side or they only had the one track they had to get her to hurriedly record some other stuff because it's, it was it was becoming more than a turntable hit, I think was how they described it. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But well, she'd moved over. Um, this was the kind of album that commercially, I guess, broke her, wasn't it? You know, so she'd yeah. sort of she'd always had the critical acclaim, but never, never sold the record. So this absolutely done that. But yeah, so I think they they, they started recording it down at Muscle Shoals and done a few, and then as as you say, there was a bit of a rammy, and they they bailed back to New York a bit, like Dusty Memphis. I think that they they got the guts of it down there, but you know, they they brought it back and polished it, kind of. I think the other Back thing, at the, ranch, the session musicians before this session were there was a cure bass players and a cure 
them guitarists and a queue of drummers that they, they were determined. It was Muscle Shoals, I take it. There was, yeah. 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 And they were determined they were going to get it right. But they seemingly, I think, I can't remember who it was, but they, they went out and bought them all a carry-out, didn't they? Is that what yeah, so they to try and get the kind of ambience going them now. I think they bought a case of vodka or something like that, and right. of course they drank it all, and that's where the that's where the fun started. So and they were all hitting on her and stuff, weren't they? So it was right. uh, yeah. I'm sure there was worse than in Muscle Shoals by musicians over the yeah years. yeah I'm yeah. sure. Did he yeah. did, he, did he sign Led Zeppelin as well? Jerry Wexler to Atlantic. Uh, well, what, was it not Amit Erdogan? You know, oh, was Jer- it? Jerry, ah, I, mean, right. I, yeah. I can't remember quite the, the hierarchy, yeah. but it was the two the two the two brothers. Yeah. Uh, I went on holiday to Turkey and was telling them that one of my heroes was the son of the Turkish ambassador. <laughs> he just looked at me blankly, you know. <laughs> we were in a hotel and the bar was run by a young guy who was into music. Oh. And I was going, you know, this guy's a god, or was it, or Andy's brother? So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I did. <laughs> That's a classic. I did. We've a few of the podcasts. Um, Jonathan, we've talked about songs, um, the originals not being the first time you heard it. Um, and this is a good example of that. So I heard the Flying Burritos Brothers yeah. version of this before I heard the Aretha Franklin. I was actually, I just thought it was like a, a Americana psychedelic song. I, I had no idea. I had the old kind of soul roots and stuff. But then when you hear the Aretha version, you're struggling a bit to square off the Flying Burritos version, if that makes sense. They're, you say you can't do wrong with it, but they're both um, outstanding, aren't they? There's a version yeah, of it. There's there's a version of it that I've got on CD. Um, somebody taped Jerry, uh, sorry Dan Payne and Spooner Oldham came over and did a tour, and somebody taped the two of them through the desk, and it's absolutely the, the Do Right Woman and um, I'm Your Puppet are absolutely back. Here's I was at that gig. Yeah, I was at that gig. Well, yeah. I'd, I'd, was it in London? No, is uh, I think they played the Arches or something. Right, in Glasgow. No, this this was this was a London company that just basically bootlegged it and put it out on their right. label. Must have been the same tour. Was this the Dungarees? Yeah. 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 Live and Dungarees. (laughs) (laughs) Not live and dangerous. I got the letter as well, of course. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, and you're obviously a big soul fan, so Aretha would be part of that love of soul, I guess, Jonathan. A little bit. um, She gets a little bit too show offy in terms of her vocal. I I prefer, you know, when she's really just down in the bucket kind of thing. Yeah. Um, But no, I like. Yes, a lot of stacks I would be into. Uh, Irma Thomas is a huge one for me, Queen of New Orleans. Um, so, yeah, yeah, uh, it's all good. That album that yeah. this is from is... Is Respect is on this album, is that is this the album that Respect sort of broke through? And I'm, I'm looking at my DE testing more. I don't think Respect was the first um, album, Stacks album, but I'm not sure. No, no, I, I'm sure I'm wrong about that then. Um yeah, and I think checking I, him books, checking <laughs> him books. I think the one of the previous podcasts that Adam Miller was on. I think Adam picked sixty six, and he picked uh, "Sweet Bitter Love" by Aretha Franklin, but it was a demo oh, right. version. Is it on it? Yeah, respect. Yeah, it opens the album. Yeah. There we go. It's the things, the things I know. Um, yeah, he picked "Sweet Bitter Love," which I, again I knew the album version, but this was a demo version of it, which was just her on the pianos, as you mentioned there, Jonathan. It was just, oh, it was just jaw dropping, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess there, there must be thousands of these songs out there that uh, I've certainly not heard. Um, I've not, maybe not heard them the way you should hear them, you know. So it's um, we had the pleasure of recording with uh, Stuart Cosgrove recently. Mm-hmm. And Stuart did a kind of soul review yeah. um, podcast. And again, some of the, I mean, these songs were all fairly well known, but some of the backstories to them were, were fascinating. 
um, and it does encourage you to, to kind of go back into to more and more of this. So would this be kind of music of choice for you, Soul, or are you, or you know, what what kind of genre would you would you land in if you were in your comfort zone? Where would you go? What a question! I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, any American genre? Yeah, I'd probably have to go with a certain. Well, it's like that country soul feel, right? You know, in a way, it's interesting that the the Burrito Brothers and Graham picked up on this, this kind of music yeah. and the South is really where all of it crossed over, you know, country, jazz, blues, folk, you know, all the mountain stuff that came from Britain, you know, everything's there. And, uh, it's, yeah, if everything's there, then I don't need anything else. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, yeah. I'd agree with that, mate. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. There's a great live clip of this um, on YouTube. I think it's from the Merv Griffin show. It's an old American, um, sort of Johnny Carson type guy. And it's fantastic. It's it's her with her. I don't. The sisters are called at the back, the three sisters. And I mean, they, they just they just smash it. You know, it's just you could rewind it and watch it. I always wonder what what the audiences were making of it at that time. You know, when you, you flick the TV on and Aretha Franklin's there knocking it out, and then it's I don't know, it's the Stones, and then it's the Doors, and it's kind of hard to quite take that all in, isn't it? Now when you. There's a famous clip of Sly and the Family Stone on the TV and one of the audience, they're doing their thing, thank you for letting me be myself again. And they're doing it and one of the, that's just a wee young boy in the audience and he's just like that. And I thought, yep, I get that, you know. Or yeah. Stevie Wonder doing Superstition as well, when yeah. it's the backing vocalist instead of the brass section. Yeah. One of the things I love about this song as well, and it's about maybe about 1967 in general, it's just before it gets into rock, where it gets away from rock and roll or rhythm and blues, and rock, white rock in particular, starts to happen. And it gets very much about the jam, about extended solos and, you know, just all improvised stuff like that and virtuoso things. And here's something that's simple and contained. It's got a beautiful intro and it has a natural ending all in about three minutes. Yeah. And it, it really represents that era of having to be that good a writer where you had to get everything said and done perfectly and concisely and, and move you, yeah. you know, to yeah. tears or make you get up and dance, you know, rather than this endless thing that could just play out as a fade out. You know, this here it is, perfect package. Yeah, as a perfect package. You can tell I've got a songwriter here, can't you? You, you <laughs> can, can indeed. Can and he's spe- thought, he's thought about this. Speaks to man, it's got eight or nine minute songs, I might, I might add. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> They're looking for that ending. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Keep it going, guys. It's coming. It's coming. You don't want to get in touch with Dan Penn. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Okay, that... dungarees. <laughs> I'll see all you Kevin Rhodes. Yeah, absolutely. That's another year. So let's say let's get this one on. From the album I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You, released in February sixty seven. This is Do Right Women, Do Right Man by Aretha Franklin. So that was uh, that was Aretha Franklin with Do Right Women, Do Right Man. Um, it was a big year for record releases and um, I've dug out not, not the best selling but the kind of critics lists for the year end you know the sort of best of um, yeah. list because it's kind of really nice snapshot and it does dovetail with one or two of your selections as well Jonathan so I'll do a quick sort of jump down these and shout out any, any comments or thoughts you've got just outside the 20 you had um, you had Aretha Franklin you had the Kinks um, you had the first Captain Beefheart record which is um, fantastic. That's Safe as Milk, I think that was. Um, you had Nico, that you touched on earlier. 
with Chelsea Girl and John Wesley Harding was there from Dillon. Um, and Tim Buckley, so that, that kind of, that second 10 if you want, were kind of quite, quite cool and, and you know, pretty well respected. 10 to 1, I'll just rattle down these. Um, so 10 was Strange Days by The Doors, which um, we'll, we'll chat about. 9 was uh, Axis Boulder's Love by Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, um, and for the listeners, Jonathan's doing a, an Axeman. Air guitar. Air guitar there, yeah. Not, yeah, but my, not, teeth are, my teeth are, are okay though. Yeah, and not setting it on fire either, no. <laughs> air fire. Air fire, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are going to put some of these clips onto YouTube, so... Alright. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> so we'll, we'll see we'll, the flames, man. We'll grab some of that, we'll superimpose it or whatever you do now. <laughs> uh, eight was Piper at the Gates of Dawn, Pink Floyd. I uh, mentioned that earlier, the old Sid Barrett thing. Um, seven was uh, Songs of Leonard Cohen. Yep. Debut record, yes, fantastic. I had a wee feeling you might stick some Leonard Cohen on. He was in my first, second, and third draft. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? Yeah. 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 It's really, I mean, somebody else said to me, Why 15? This is, well, I don't know, but, you know, 10 didn't feel enough and 20 goes on for hours type thing. Yeah, I just I find a, a line somewhere. So. Um, but it is hard. Uh, six was the uh, Magical Mystery Tour by the Beatles. Was a bit surprised that, but some good tunes in like there. It. To be fair, yeah, yeah, I, like yeah. I, I, I think I was probably put off because I saw the film and didn't particularly enjoy it. Mm. But I do enjoy it. You're right. Some of the songs on it are fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. Five was Forever Changes by Love, yep. which I think we'll touch on. Four brings Jimi Hendrix back in again. Are you experienced? So two albums, one year. Um, as do the doors so the doors debut album was number three which uh, again we'll touch on Velvet Nico was two and um, Sergeant Peppers was number one no monkeys in there monkeys had three albums out that year yeah they've been the best selling wouldn't they I guess um, and they became they became very critically acclaimed we, we talked about Mike Nesmith in one of the other podcasts and who, who ended up with a you know stonking reputation didn't they for these kind of country rock stuff that he'd done in the 70s. Didn't, didn't need the money. His mother invented no. Tipex, so he, he was the heir to the Tipex. Or white as it was called. I think, yeah. Other other correction fluid is available. Uh, yeah. Yes. Well, he had the heart, didn't he? Once you have the heart, you don't you don't need anything else, do you? Yep. Yeah. So that, you know, Pe- Peppers was number one, which I guess, you know, if you look back at the best of, no great surprise, I guess, based on what was going on in 67, and it takes us quite nicely onto your next selection. Um, so from Peppers you have picked Within Without You by the Beatles so why did you pick this one from the, the record I guess as a 12 year old uh, hearing Within You Without You didn't quite gel right it was the difficult opener to sign to it was indeed and I was also slightly disturbed by the little sample at the end of it, which is laughing women. But to me, as a 12-year-old, it sounded like they were crying and it freaked me out a little. Um, And yeah, it just wasn't as accessible to my my 12-year-old ears. But with the passing of time, I would probably say it's my favourite song on the album now. I I think it's one of... it's Yeah, definitely. Um, Because? Um... There, well, it. Where to begin with it? It, it sounds like nothing else at at the time. 
and on the album it sounds like nothing else i think the quality of the recording is phenomenal it's a real it's interesting because no other beatles are on it other than george that's so right. that that's kind of unique and i think um, lennon was at the session i think wasn't he he was like in the in the crowd but he didn't didn't record right. on it yeah but i think it's really it, it's really a recording that represents <clears throat> the two georges you know george martin obviously being the other one who in my view is the ultimate fifth beatle you know he's he's played on more of their songs and been more influential <laughs> in what they've done i think in, in recording terms so he, Some, he someone says he's played on more than ringo has <laughs> no, 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 Ringo here. No, I'm not, not going to stand for that either. But uh, no, it really shows where that sort of bringing of another world and another culture and another music to Britain and to the Beatles' world. And George Martin kind of going along for the ride initially, but then actually rising to the challenge and his orchestral work on that, his arrangement on that with the strings to really elevate it just from maybe another Eastern sounding recording, another Indian recording. Hmm. I also think it's it's a pivotal moment in the Beatles history where um, really George has left already. He'd had that trip in 1966, the year before, to India by himself, learned the sitar, did all that, and discovered where his heart really was at. And coming back then into the studio where he plays third fiddle, you know, probably thought well, <laughs> this feels too too much like hard work. Yeah. So, I think the fact that they allowed him the space to do that is also uh, very indicative of the Beatles spirit. Where even though there's that sort of narrative that he was maybe kept a bit in the back, I mean, how do you not be with Lennon and McCartney in the band? But yeah. they still said no. Let's let's do this really out there kind of track. And we're willing to put it on this big anticipated album that the world is waiting for that we're taking ages to record so it was pretty ballsy yeah. i think of all of them yeah from george martin to, to all four of them to do it i do it's just beautiful i think it's just utterly utterly beautiful mm -hmm. as well and really moves me and uh yeah sometimes there's not much more i need to say about that um if something just moves me that much why do I need to think of anything more about it? But I think all those things make it really interesting. And the fact that, yeah, now that it's gone from my least favorite to my most favorite, and and just that idea as well of being really part of the scene, part of the era, where looking for something more than just mm. poppiness, you know, mm. something deeper. And for some years, maybe it sounds a bit pretentious, a song or a track, you know, it's, it's trying to get a, a bit heavy, really, and deep and meaningful and a little bit that way Harrison could be, which is a little bit superior and critical of others in a way. I think he had, you know, he can sort of dance that line a little bit. Yeah. And um, I, I so I think it represents that, that real looking for something more meaningful that then became a, a movement proper, you know, within the hippie movement after that. So yeah, it's it's you can't have the sixties without this song in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And he he was um, he was very much part of counterculture, but he wasn't a big fan of the whole summer love thing and and all that. Because um, yeah. he was, you oh. say, the guys, some of the guys went to America and he went to India, didn't he? And uh, and come back with a whole new perspective. Talked about leaving the band. Just kind of talked out of it a little bit, as you say. He's kind of his head. He was probably one foot out anyway. He only has one song, I think, on the record, um, and then it's. 
it's such a different song to have. You know, you're thinking I'm only getting one song. I'm going to I'm going to nail this, aren't I? So it's as if he's kind of poured everything into it, really, because it's you're right. It's a kind of I don't know. It's like a work of art, really, isn't it? It's just. Uh, and I can sing along with every single line of it. You know, every single instrument on it and every single percussive noise yeah. is all like a vocal. Hook, yeah, that's right. You know? yeah. Do you want to give us a quick rendition? <laughs> all right, is that enough? There's plenty. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I can't remember, I was reading, a, in fact, there was this week I was reading a, a sort of a piece on him in Mojo magazine. And it was talking a bit about stuff like that and uh, how he was always a bit peripheral. And the Get Back film, of course, has kind of, I suppose, has amplified that a bit that has come out come out recently. But he was talking about, uh, isn't it a pity, you know, the song that's on um, All Things Was Past? And he said he had the first go at that at the Revolver sessions. Wow. And brought it in pretty much for every record. Mm. You know, what have you got type thing. And one of the things that he had was a kind of version of Isn't It a Pity? And for four years... They they kind of yeah. kiboshed them and you saw that in the the, the, the documentary didn't you? The they stuff never, they only ever allowed them to have one song on each Beatles album, did they not? No, I think well, towards the, the end, one. towards he the got end, he got a bit more. Yeah. So what tax yeah, revolver? Revolver, tax. Oh, sorry, sorry. The couple didn't they? And then white album, I think, is one in on each side. Long, long, long. Um, guitar, gentle leaps, piggies. Savoy Truffle. Savoy Truffle, thank you. Yeah, no, but he was. He was, he was very marginalised. I think towards the end, I think he absolutely got got recognition, particularly on Abbey Road. Arguably, the best songs on there are, are his, I guess. Um, Although I got to say, Long, Long, Long is probably one of my favourite Beatles yeah, songs. Yeah, that's a great show. Oh. Actually, that's a kind of lo-fi. It's like Beatles do lo-fi, isn't it? It's just yeah. Yeah. it's just yeah. the structure of it's amazing because it just doesn't really doesn't do what it's meant to do, but it works. Yeah, yeah. And the and the album itself, Jonathan, kind of kind of quick pressy on that what are we now 50 55 years i think is that on so where, on does, where does peppers now sit do you think well i think i knew it so well by the time i was 13 that um and learned every note of it you know and then when i was you know learned some music and how to play you know tried to play every note of it um after that as well so it became over familiar stepped away from it did other things and then seemed to be it's also a certain sound you know mm. that doesn't transfer easily now to modern years. 68 onwards, you know, the White Album onwards, really, mm. that could still stand up in the modern era, but it still sounds very 60s -y, you know, lots of reverb and stuff and some of the guitars and that. So uh, that's where Within You, Without You also, you know, sounds different. It yeah. doesn't particularly sound of very 60s -y in that way. Uh, but as I got the, the big 50th anniversary box set you know where you you hear a lot more of the outtakes than the anthology series showed you yeah hearing them run through versions of things like getting better and fixing a hole they sound so modern and so indie and so rocking you know that uh don't feel of its time right um, so it's interesting hearing it with slightly fresh ears like that you know yeah. like a a different sort of perspective of hearing them kind of work out the songs yeah and uh, just run through them you can hear a band at work because obviously it was a, an album that really represented we don't have to be a four-piece band. We can be an orchestra, we can do anything. And, and really George Harrison took that the furthest by saying, right, none of you are even playing on it. We're going to have all the <laughs> Indian guys. They can be Sergeant Peppers. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, the song represents that even more. So, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's nice to hear those versions uh, where they do sound like a four-piece 
playing them because they could play those songs as a four piece yeah, you know because yeah. they were they were the Beatles they were great of course and there's always the argument about if they managed to stick um, Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane on because originally that they were to go on yeah. and then the, the record company kind of encouraged them to do a single um, and they ended up sort of holding it off so um, yeah and I, I, have you heard the Sonic Youth cover of no. Within Without You no yeah it's um, uh, well yeah, it's Sonic Youth, you know, it sounds like Sonic Youth. Um, but it's really good. It's kind of a bit, a bit droney, I guess, you know, so they replicate the sitars and all that by, you know, having that kind of bit of a drone sound, a bit Velvet underground type thing. Um, yeah. But that's no, great. Can't remember whether that's from the 80s or something, early 80s, early 90s. And I read, uh, uh, talking about the song, uh, Bobby Womack said it's quite arguably the album's ethical soul. Hmm. Which I thought was quite well, interesting because he's a he's kind of one of those guys, isn't he, that seems to have his finger on on what's right for for things. So, well, it's interesting as well thinking about that pivotal moment where it's the summer of love, um, and then we know obviously what happened from '68 onwards and the darkness in in Europe and the world that happened in America and all the assassinations and yeah. people dying and and all the riots everywhere, and. Uh, here we have it starting off like a big, you know, welcome to the show kind of thing with a little help from my friends, a bit of psychedelia. Everything's getting better all the time. It's all this, it's all really upbeat and, and love. And of course, all you need is love was out that year as well. Yeah. But then comes within you without you, you know, something that wants to search a bit deeper. And the record ends with the day in the life. Yeah. You know, it's ominous, you know, God, have you read the news today? <laughs> you know, it's, it's just... Yeah. So it really, within one album, it conveys what was happening or about to happen. Right at that the turning point, I think. So, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. It uh, cost 25 grand to make, which I think is about 400 grand in today's money. It still seems reasonably cheap, I guess. You you, you must work with budgets like that, Jonathan. Oh, aye, aye. Yeah, 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 yeah. all the time. Sure, Ian and the guys are, are pretty, pretty generous with <laughs> And they made it in six months, you know. But like how, how long does it, would it take for a record like that to be made now? You know, yeah, years. Yeah, years. Very, very true. It was, number, it was number one in the UK for 23 weeks consecutively. And I think it was number one again. It sort of come off and then back on again. It was it was around for forever. So Probably at number three now. <laughs> <laughs> and no singles released from the album. You say All You Need Is Love came out a little bit later in the year. But uh, yeah, it's kind of, to think of an album that big without a single from it, it was... Quite unusual, isn't it? So. Okay, uh, and of course, more importantly, um, you know, without the Beatles, we couldn't have got the Ruttles. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so let's get let's be serious for a second here. So um, I've listened to the Ruttles that often that yeah. I actually confuse some of the songs. Like, <laughs> I feel good. I feel bad. I feel happy. I uh, feel sad. You know well, you. It takes a minute and you go, oh, wait a minute, that's the Ruttles. What's the song? So it's seemingly, John Lennon gave them a steer. He, they, they used to play all the stuff to John Lennon and he would tell them the ones that were particularly litigious and say that, <laughs> the, the, you know, the record company will have you for that or the publishing company will have you for that. So they would change like a couple of words or, because they loved them. You know, I, they were, they, 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 they were huge on them. I, I heard, I mean, I've never double checked this story, but I heard that, um, they actually ended up giving the publishing to Northern Songs because they were scared they were going to get sued. Oh, that wouldn't surprise me. But McCartney didn't find it funny and Lennon did. And George Harrison's company paid for the film as well. Yeah. So, um, all you need is cash. That, yeah, that, that, yeah, that was funded yeah. by George yeah, Harrison. Was it? Yeah. Right. I can't remember the song as I might be Cheese and Onions. Is that the one that's got the big day in the life ending? Where yeah. it does all the, you know, the, the mental violin yeah. stuff. There, and, it, and you know the piano at the end? It's one guy, hits a note, goes bump. 
<laughs> I saw the Ruttles live. Did you? Yes, and I, I went along. Yeah. And one of my friends bought tickets for us, but I'd never actually seen All You Need Is Cash, so he was not getting any of the jokes. Because right. at one point, they had, everyone brought out teacups, and when they did, when they did <laughs> cheese and onion, they were actually holding up C-E-H-E-E-S-E. <laughs> and I, I was, you know, I was, the whole thing was really uh, amusing. And I love, I love him. Um, what's his name again? Sorry. Yeah. The Bonjour Dog do that man. Uh, Neil Innes. Neil Innes. Yeah. Neil Innes has got a really... You know that kind of innocent, like quintessentially nice. And you know he would never swear, and his humour was just he that he was like that the whole night. You know. Yeah, absolutely. So if if the Rottles had been out in '67, they might have been um, swapping it out, Jonathan. But they weren't. Yeah. So, um, so we'll we'll stick to your choice. So from Sergeant Peppers, um, this is Within Without You by the Beatles. Hello there. Our conversation with Jonathan on The Beatles takes us to the end of part one of our music podcast discussing the tunes from 1967 that Jonathan's chosen. Hope you've enjoyed it so far. If you have, part two is also available now to listen to on Apple. You can find us by searching over our garden wall or going through Apple Podcast and search on there. Catch you soon. All the best.